Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened, arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit, despite it all, black and white. Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. afternoon to you. You are in the glass house. My name is Beth AQ. I hope you're having a good day wherever you are. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen unceded lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge the Rwandri people as the traditional custodians of this land who have cared for and told stories on these lands since time immemorial. I acknowledge colonisation is an ongoing project. It always was, always is and always will be Aboriginal land. This afternoon, I'm going to be speaking with writer and teacher from Western Sydney, Rawa Aja. Uh, her writing has been published widely, including being featured in Arab Australian Other, which we've covered on the show uh, last year or perhaps the year before, uh, also SBS Voices and the Sydney Writers Festival. But she joins this afternoon to speak about her debut novel, The F Team, which is a rich and funny young adult no- novel that really draws a really intimate portrait of Western Sydney families, friendships and communities. So very much looking forward to chatting with her about that. And then later on in the program, I'll be sharing a piece from All the Best. If you're not familiar with All the Best, it is a show where emerging Australian audio storytellers learn how to make stories. Uh, It's a weekly podcast and community radio show that's produced at FBI in Sydney uh, in association with Sin Media and Triple R here in Nam in Melbourne. And today we're going to be hearing a piece all about the effects of nature on healing the brain. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Tariq Nadir is the leader of the Wolfpack at Punchbowl Boys. He has been asked by the new principal to join a football competition with his mates in order to rehabilitate the public image of the school. But there's a catch. Half the team is made up of high school boys from their enemy territory, Cronulla. Set in Sydney's West, the F team is Rawa Aja's debut YA novel and she joins me on the line now to talk about it. Rawa, welcome to Triple R. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about your journey to publishing, as I know that this is your your first book. Um, and from what I've read um, over the internet, I've seen that your your dad is a bit of an influence and is a big <laughs> reader. I'd love to uh, to learn a little bit about how your family has perhaps influenced your writing and, and education career. Um, you know, if somebody said to me that when I was younger that I was going to be a writer, I would probably think they were crazy. <laughs> I actually, I never read as a kid, um, though I saw my father read every night. Um, he's an avid reader um, and really would pick up anything and read, whether it be newspaper, books. Um, and so I sort of thought that reading was only a school chore or something that you do because the teacher tells you to do it. And so for a long time, I, I didn't really invest in literature or in books um, until I was 15 years old. And my English teacher said to me, you have your HSC in the next few years. And, you know, reading is only an important skill, but it's something that you would need to uh, know because you have your HSC coming up. And so I read reluctantly a book called uh, Looking for Ella Brandy. Mm. Um, and so that was an Australian classic and that changed my life. Quite literally, I finished it in a day. Um, from, so I went from not being a reader uh, and to actually disliking reading, very much so, to becoming an avid reader because books like Looking for La Brandy and books like um, Does My Head Look Big in This by Randa Abdafatah, I, I saw myself in literature. Mm. And so, so it wasn't so much that I disliked reading, it was that I connected with reading now. I finally saw myself and I felt as though my story was worth mentioning and that I mattered. Um, and my family had a really big influence in um, my book because they're actually characters in my book um, to the point where it's the same names. Um, <laughs> they didn't even know until it was published and I was like, hey guys, so you are in the book as well, um, so you can't sue me. Um, here it is. Um, and so I grew, like I said, my family are a big influence and a big inspiration to why and how this book came about, in particular my father who, you know, I didn't want to get a degree and my father's like, you know, a woman should be not only independent but financially independent as well. And a degree he thought was the way to go. Um, and so I sort of did it to make him proud. But now, like, it's, it opened up so many avenues. I, I became a teacher. Um, and so, yeah, I all the characters in my book were inspired by the students that I actually taught. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I suppose from it seems from quite an early stage in the in the production of this book, you kind of clearly had your audience in mind. I'd love to know how closely the people that you teach and, and work with resemble the characters in this book. Um, so I've been teaching for about 10 years um, and the same community that I was born in, grew up in, went to school in and also went to university in. Um, and so uh, for a long time, I would sort of read about my own community from 
outsiders. So I believed what outsiders thought. And when I say outsiders, I mean people who have no idea about uh, my uh, community in terms of it being from southwestern Sydney. Mm-hmm. Western Sydney, you know, it doesn't have sometimes the best reputation. And for a long time, I sort of felt like I was second best because I was from Punchbowl. Um, and Punchbowl is very, you know, you can find it anywhere in the news for sometimes some really horrible things. But, you know, that only makes up a very small portion of my community. And I felt like I owed it to my community to show what we're really about, um, to show how the church has halal sausages um, on open days and how the mosque has blankets for the homeless and how all the shop owners um, know, we sort of know each other by first name basis and they give us like free bananas and a free lamb cutlet here and there. Um, And it's really close and a strong community and I thought to myself why isn't this this is really where I come from and these are the people that should be represented um and so you know they say if it doesn't exist you should create it and so I I started writing and I thought I love the people in my community and I really love where I'm from and the people I work with um and I just felt like it was like an ode to them um Mm. something that they could be proud of um and I really particularly wrote it so these young boys and girls particularly young boys, pick it up, pick this book up and go, okay, I can feel safe now when I read this book. I don't have to sort of be the bad guy for once. Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's really, they were, I always say that my community were the silent writers of this book. Yeah, it really does feel like a, a celebration um, of these, you know, teenage boys that go to Punchbowl. And, um, yeah, I think it's a really, it, yeah, it feels like a very special ode to to them and, and their lives. Um I would love to chat a little bit about, um, you know, like starting from the the start of the book, you know, from a really, from really early on in the book, you kind of see how this school is over surveilled by the media um, and how teachers and parents and students are really acutely aware uh, of the media's presence. And I'm interested why you thought that was important to kind of, you know, centre the book in that context. Um, Because you're sort of based on the idea that Punchbowl has always been a place that has been scrutinised, whether it be through schools or through the community or through particular, um, you know, neighbourhoods. And so uh, we have this resilience um, in this community that a lot of people sort of maybe not know or we don't really talk much about. But um, in times of the the most difficult times, and I was speaking to some of these students who in, you know, real life when there was media outside of the school and how he made them feel. Um, and a lot of them sort of, uh, in, in the beginning chapter, I sort of deal with it in a humorous way mm-hmm. in that you'd think that this would absolutely crush so many of the students, but they have this resilience and this strong backbone and uh, that they sort of were confident and knowing who they were. And I love that aspect about them and knowing that, you know, no matter what the outside world sort of says, they're always going to be on the outside. And they sort of like the idea in a strange way of um, not having to prove themselves. They didn't really have to prove themselves. And in the beginning, I sort of, sort of, you know, write about how these Wolfpack sort of make fun through a bet that they have with this hot reporter as opposed to what the reporter's actually saying and reporting about them. They're more interested in her looks. Um, and so there's this dynamic that, that was truly created um, when... Uh, you know, I had brothers that went to Punchbowl Boys. I have family, friends that went to Punchbowl Boys. It's honestly, it, it, there's a resilience there, like I said, that um, is so admirable. And I just thought, 
um, if you can beat the media, <laughs> which I feel they have, like mentally, it didn't, mm. like it did get to them. Of course it did. Um, but th- they have these wonderful role models around them that, that really were protective of them and tr- sort of reminded them that, you know, you know, it's okay. I know that the, the world sort of thinks this about us, but we're in it together. And I love that the teachers there were, were using the words like us, not you. Um, so, yeah, and I just thought it was very important to represent that in my book. Mm, absolutely. And I think there's this real authenticity of those characters in the way that they respond to that situation because I was just reflecting on how I could absolutely imagine um, that kind of playing out uh, in high school. And, yeah, I just thought it was really great. Um I'd love to talk a little bit about, um, I suppose, some of the the central themes in in this book. I, you know, I feel like a large part of the book is about the kind of navigation of cross cultural relationships that kind of happen between, you know, the Wolfpack and their fellow F team members um, who are from Cronulla. Um, I'd love to know how you kind of went about approaching writing that kind of navigation of those uh, relationships, you know, between these two different worlds. Um, like you said, you know, it's really important to be authentic. Um, and so I really wanted to sort of draw on my own experiences. And I personally had an experience when I was in high school um, where my, we had a high school teacher uh, newly come over from Cronulla uh, to my high school in uh, Valley Park Girls High. <laughs> and, you know, he, he had the best of intentions, but he thought a few months after Cronulla riots to take a bunch of uh, girls visibly Muslim girls, um, you know, to Cronulla, where everything was still raw and there was still that, you know, sensitivity and that heat there, to go by train and sort of walk in the streets of Cronulla and then head down to, I can't remember what school it was, but it was in Cronulla and sitting down. And I felt this intense disconnect. And we sort of, it was strange because I didn't, you know, I wasn't in the riots. These kids that were sitting across me were in the riots, and yet there was a strong sort of dislike towards one another, and we sort of didn't even know why. And I thought to myself, that's really strange. Like, we, we, the whole day we spent it, and we sort of didn't speak to each other at all. Mm. And I thought that was a shame. And I, I, I particularly wanted to focus on this because um, I, I haven't read it in, in literature. It was a really big part of Australian history. And a lot of these young boys that I have been talking to have biased opinions towards one another based on what their brothers or what their uncles or what their cousins have told them. You know, these kids in the book would be two years old when this happened, mm. um, when Cronulla riots happened. And I thought, you know, that's not fair to sort of have these biased opinions um, if you haven't even met each other face-to-face. So I got this idea of, well, what happens if we put we put these boys in a group of, you know, in a room, what, what, what would happen? And so uh, I thought sport was the best way to combat any form of um, racism or uh, the lack of understanding, rather. And so that's why I, I started with two, two sort of areas that really we sort of don't connect anymore. There's nothing. We, we were very divided in a way mm. um, on both sides. And I just thought, you know, let's let's take that and put it on its head and, and let's put a rugby league competition. Um, and, and quite early on, both sides from Cronulla and Punchbowl sort of say things like, oh, I don't want to be part of that team or why do we have to, you know, mix in with people from Cronulla or why do we have to mix in from people from Punchbowl? But yet they've, they don't know anything about one another. And so they explore now what it's like to see people with a face 
and and sort of know them on first name basis, and, and sort of that that prejudice sort of starts to disappear now when you when you see each other as human beings. Mm. Um, and so I really wanted to explore that. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Rara. Uh, Rawa Aja, all about her debut YA novel, The F Team. Um, I'd love to just pick up on what you said, just that, you know, sport can be this unifier for people, you know, not always, but um, I think that's something that really comes through with this book that, you know, both sport and perhaps art is the other one that you draw and can be these kind of equalizers or these things that unify all people um you know you obviously have uh, football as a really uh, a really strong kind of pot point um and then you also have the um the poetry and the poetry slams i'd love if you can speak about um that yeah that decision to use both football and poetry as kind of anchors to the story um, I sort of had a personal experience once again. Um, I, I, you know, I am a Bulldogs fan, um, and so <laughs> I went to a rugby league match, one of my first many years ago, um, and I went with a group of friends who um, I think were playing. I can't remember if it was Cronulla or St. Jude um, at the time. And so I was really nervous. Um, you know, I wear the hijab, the, the Muslim headscarf. And so for a lot of people, it's easy to go to a place they haven't been to and just see, and there's no sort of mental process that goes through planning from A to Z. But when you're a Muslim woman, you do. You, you just think, oh, if somebody says something, what do I do? You know, if someone wants, if there's an altercation, how do I go about it? And so I was really nervous. I mean, I remember sitting in a in a group of people where there was these tall, big white men, and they were drinking beer. And I, I did the same thing that I didn't like what was happening to me. I stereotyped them, and I was like, "Oh God, these guys are going to be racist. Oh no, what am I doing here?" I mean, it was seven minutes in the game, and, and Bulldogs scored, and we all jumped up. And I sort of looked back, and I was so shocked um, because they were Bulldogs supporters, and they said to me. Um, you know, don't look so surprised. We go for the Bulldogs too. And long story short, by the end of the game, we were best friends. And because I felt like sport when I was there, I didn't really have to explain myself. I didn't have to tell people, hey, guys, you know, there's no bomb under here. Um, and it was just nice just to support or feel, felt like I really felt like I belonged. Um, and it was something that I struggled with, this idea of belonging. Um, and I, I decided to focus on sport, particularly rugby league, not only because it's really part of Australian culture, but there's this idea of, you know, toxic masculinity around it. And I wanted to sort of break that up with the poetry slam. A lot of these young boys in the community think that poetry is, is only for girls um, and it's just a feminine sort of... Uh, way to express your feelings and I just thought that's just not true you can uh, and these boys sort of struggle to to express themselves and there's a lack of an emotional intelligence and I thought what better way to combat with um, the Bankstown Poetry Slam a really good friend of mine her name is Sarah and she started that and then I remember when I was watching it, I saw, I saw so many punchball boys sort of get up and, you know, read off their phone or just read, and it was just the most extraordinary feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to break down the barriers of both sport being really toxic or could be toxic, you know, masculinity, and I wanted to break the idea of that the poultry sand being only for girls. It's just not true. You can express yourself in many different ways, and so I love that contrast, and I thought it would be a great way to explore that. Mm. 
Yeah, I love that because I feel like obviously with the sport, you've got that way that you can express yourself, you know, physically and that it's kind of contained and then, you know, within ways that are kind of safe. And then you also have, yeah, poetry, which is obviously a way that you can express yourself in terms of emotional intelligence. And yeah, I love that it's kind of like dualities. I think that's really interesting. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, um, Sarah, the, you know, the book is obviously rooted in a community that you're, you know, deeply embedded in and you even have some of those kind of real community I say real you know uh, real community leaders um, that kind of appear as characters in the book um, you know you have uh, Sarah Mansour who uh, encourages Tariq at the Bankstown Poetry Slam who I believe is the one of the co-founders of the um, Bankstown Poetry Slam I, I'd love to know your kind of thinking behind including these real people these real community leaders into this into this world um so just, just throughout my teaching experience, um, I, a lot of the time I really I try to listen to these kids. I'm very observant as a teacher. And a lot of the times in this community, unfortunately, which I sort of understand, but they have this victim mentality. So this idea of the whole world already thinks this of me, so what's the point of even trying? Um, nobody supports us. We're always going to be second best. Sort of, and I don't like that mentality because I, I try to tell them, yeah, it may be a little bit harder for us to achieve, but it does. It just it just means you just have to work harder, um, which will only benefit you, I believe. Um, and so, a lot of the times, they think that nobody is there to support them. And so, I really wanted to show them that there's amazing people in our community doing incredible things. Have a look at Sarah Mansell. She started mm-hmm. the Bankstown Poetry Slam because she was tired of travelling to places that were so far from her um, just to read poetry and express herself. She thought to herself, why not have it here? Like, I know there's so many people in Bangsan that would love to do this, and now it's it's gone extraordinary. It's so big, and she has guests from all over the world come in and, and you know, read their poetry. Um, I had people like Tony Burke. I had people like um, Hazel Masri. Um, these people not only, like, they do a lot for the community, and a lot of the times... You know, I've, I believe the biggest form of oppression is the idea of losing hope. Um, you sort of can't move forward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these kids, I didn't want this community or their school to be a place of hopelessness. And I wanted to use real-life examples. I could have easily created, you know, um, you know, role models that I believe should exist, but they do exist. Um, and I just wanted them to be accessible um, to these young boys and girls who often feel sometimes it can be very lonely feeling, you know, that believing the labels that people sort of attain to you or this is the this is the level of achievement you only ever get as being a, mi- a minority or a person of colour. And I want to shatter that and I want to show them real-life examples of people who absolutely have hit the ball out of the park. Um, and so accessibility is very important to me. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of these kids are coming up to me now saying, I never knew that Poetry Slam existed. I'm going to actually go check that out, which is mm. pretty cool. I love um, that. Yeah. That's a really cool outcome um, of people, uh, yeah, young people reading the book. Um, Just while we are kind of talking about role models within it, I think Tariq's dad is, you know, just such a kind of silent hero throughout this book. Um, You know, his patience and resilience. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about him? So Tarek's father is actually based on my, my my father himself. And if you don't know anything about my father, you would probably know him as a TikTok star. Um, <laughs> he's so went viral all over the world 
of just videos of him going to work and he's 70 years old and he's an essential worker and I remember in in the the midst of the pandemic in April and I said to him you know stay home like you don't have to work and he said you know Australia gave me so much and it's it's the time that they need me now I I should I should be there and his resilience and his patience I thought to myself this is incredible. I, I need to have my father as as a, a character, um, as a role model for these young boys. Um, not to forget that the, a lot of these young boys come from broken homes mm-hmm. um, and they don't have that big brother role model or that father role model. And I thought to my, that sort of breaks my heart because everybody deserves to have a, a, you know, a good father and a good mother. And so I thought to myself, if I put my father in this book, you know, if these kids are reading it at home and there's probably chaos going at home, but they can sit quietly in their room and, and my father can almost speak to them, even though he, you know, he hasn't met them face to face, but there's that open communication that I wanted to create that if these kids felt like they didn't have any answers, that maybe if they opened this book, um, characters like my father can give them the answers. Um, and so a lot of the issues that these boys were facing, I actually put in the book, um, and I sort of made my father sort of answer those questions. And so I wanted to create that line of communication and hopefully that these boys know that there's people out there looking for them, even if they don't know their name or haven't met them, that they have an army behind them. Um, but, you know, not to make any excuses for them, that they sort of have to also meet us halfway mm-hmm. and understand that, you know, life's not easy. But, you know, if my father can do it and came to the country with $50 in his pocket... I'm sure that you can find a way to to make your dreams come true. Mm. I love that so much. In so many ways, it feels like, yeah, just the biggest kind of love and appreciation to your dad. And I, I've I've read that this book is dedicated to your parents. Um, I have seen these amazing TikTok videos that you do with your dad. It's they're just absolutely amazing and heartwarming. Um, and just while we're on it, can we just have a moment for that beautiful video that you posted where? Your parents saw your book in the bookstores for the first time. Can you tell me what that was like for you? So, backstory: I actually was supposed to release my book in April, and then COVID hit, and then we made the decision in March for it not to come out. And I thought, oh, I waited five. It took me five years and rejections after rejection. I just, it wasn't for me to have a book launch, but I just wanted to stand up in front of a group of people and just look at my parents and just pretty much say thank you. Mm. Um, and so for five years, I every night I thought about that moment and then COVID hit and then my publishers made the decision, let's leave it to September. And, you know, things were going well when I was organizing a book launch and then obviously the second wave hit and my publishers said, no, you know, it's, it's, it, you can't do it. And I was just heartbroken. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm still going to celebrate, but I just want it to be between myself and my parents. Um, and so I took it for the first time. So my parents didn't know that it's actually in bookstores. They just thought you just buy it online. And, you know, it's a really big moment for it to be in the biggest bookstores in Australia, like mm. Dimix and, you know, Booktopia, et cetera. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to film this because I wanted it for me. And then just their reaction was so incredible and so overwhelming and my father couldn't stop smiling and I thought to myself, you know what, if it wasn't for my parents, I know this book, this book would never have happened. So they deserve to sign it just as much as myself. So my parents actually signed the book and wrote a little message. Um, 
And I shared it with the world only because I wanted to encourage young boys and girls who write to me saying that they want to write a book, um, but it's really, really difficult. And I said to them, so that video was just like an inspiration for them. Mm-hmm. And so we just went viral and all over the world and people were just saying, you know, that's so nice that, you know, your parents are supportive. And I go, yeah, I know it's, I'm actually quite, I know it's hard to, like, bad to say this, but I am really lucky to have parents that, um, are so supportive and have been there from day one and a crazy story and I thought to myself there's only one book in Australia that my parents have signed I wonder who's going to get it and yesterday I had a podcast and the woman uh, her name is Alice and she came up to me she's like oh can you just sign my book because um, I opened it and it's only your parents signature so <laughs> funny enough yesterday I met the woman who actually bought my parents copy and I signed it as well so <laughs> I love that yeah come home full circle that's so special. Uh, the F team is Rawa Aja's new YA novel and it is out now through Giramondo. Thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. The next story comes from All the Best. And if you don't know All the Best, it is, it is a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. It's a weekly podcast and also a community radio show produced at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with Sin Media and Triple R here in Melbourne. And the next story comes from their latest episode called All in Your Head. Have you ever wished you could climb inside somebody else's head to understand them better or just to escape? In this episode, storytellers volunteer to be figuratively trepanned and we take a peek inside their inner worlds. Some, it turns out, are pitch black. My last memory was riding through this roundabout and the next moment was waking up under the car. And then I sort of had moments returning to me, but I couldn't tell if I'd just created them in my mind of like the underside of a car and crashing into metal. But I really wasn't sure if my brain was playing tricks on me because my brain wasn't working very well for quite a long time. My name is Sarah Allerley and I was the creator and writer and producer of the independent podcast Brain on Nature and I'm here in uh, Sydney, Australia. So it's a six-part narrative non-fiction series and it's about how going out into the natural world changed my brain. So I had a bike accident a few years ago and it left me with a uh, mild traumatic brain injury and I was unable to read or write, listen to music, watch TV, look after my young kids, and I slowly discovered that spending time out in nature helped me recover. I was riding my bike just down the road in Dalich Hill in Sydney just before 8am on a Saturday morning to an exercise class that I did in the park. I was on my way there, halfway there, and I woke up on the road surrounded by strangers telling me not to move, and I was in a lot of pain, and they said, don't move, an ambulance is coming. Basically, I'd been knocked off my bike by a car. (laughs) 
Head injuries are really complicated and they don't diagnose brain injuries for quite a while. Initially it's just considered a concussion. And I was just sent home from the hospital with April sheet of paper saying, if in four weeks' time your symptoms haven't improved, go and see the GP. So it took quite a long time to diagnose and yeah, I mean you just think you're going a bit crazy, right? And think maybe you're imagining it because it's quite an invisible injury. Trying to explain to a doctor that, no, my brain's not working, I can't read a novel and I can't listen to a podcast, like, yes, I might be able to look like I'm really functioning, but it was, it's hard to explain to people that there's all these kind of other things that you can't do. I remember trying to convince the brain injury specialist, but I'm not better yet, I can't read really complicated stuff. You know, I can listen to some podcasts, but podcasts that are a bit complicated, I still can't follow them, and that's sort of hard to explain to someone who doesn't know you. This is a weird situation where, because I had a brain injury, but hadn't been diagnosed, but I, my brain wasn't working properly, so I wasn't kind of getting on the internet and Googling brain injury, you know, like I wasn't trying to self-diagnose myself. I wasn't even thinking, I was just like, ugh, I feel weird. In terms of recovery time, there were definitely moments where, you know, weeks, months, where I thought I was actually never going to recover. And that made me slip into a bit of anxiety and depression. And, and that's another thing that I found nature really helpful for. So I started going for walks down, I live in Dulwich Hill and there's like just a, a river called the Cooks River, it's quite a sort of urban park river. But I'd never, I'd lived there for years and I'd never actually really kind of bothered to walk down there much and I started walking down there doing quite big walks and finding that it really helped to relieve my anxiety and depression. It was funny though because before that I'd gone to Bondi Beach and stayed with a friend when I was just like, I had to get away from my kids and everything and I just needed silence and I was just having constant headaches and I went and sat on the beach and just stared at the waves but again my brain wasn't thinking oh must be nature I was just like oh that's interesting staring at the waves it's kind of like meditating and but it, I wasn't joining dots for quite a long time I guess the sort of journalist analytical person really wanted to know what is it about it and how much time do I need to spend in nature and what's the dose and am I better to sit in my back garden or go to a national park? Is it the sights and the sounds and the touch or what is it? This is Brain on Nature, a podcast about how going out into the natural world changed my brain. I'm Sarah Allerley. I always wanted the podcast to be quite immersive in terms of the sound design and to really give people a sense of what it was like to be inside my head. And I think we achieved that. For me, really, it was about sound. And I... I really struggled with loud environments like cafes and bars, even this dropping my kids off at school, being in a room where there was more than one conversation. I found just like any kind of like shopping centre, like I just couldn't even, it was like, it was like you've got your recorder and the mic is just turned, everything's just turned up. So I, when I made that connection, I realised that it, actually audio was the perfect format. I remember my partner, Miles saying quite earlier on, oh, you should start making some voice memos and you could maybe make a podcast about your experience. And I was like, 
I'm never going to be well enough to make a podcast. Like, that's how I felt. I really was like, this could be forever. It was very confronting. I stumbled across a few magazine articles about the benefits of nature on the brain and found that there was some science to it. And, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm very analytical, and knowing that there were, like, facts and this wasn't just me, I was like, huh, wow, maybe I could make a documentary about this when I'm a bit better. And then sort of, you know, a while later, I saw um, Jess O'Callaghan was run, was doing a um, podcast workshop at Sydney Writers' Festival, and I was like, oh, I might do this. And then it, and then it said please bring along something you're working on. And I was like, oh, oh, I don't know if I should tell them about this. I don't really want to tell people that I've got a brain injury. And I was really shy and I like went up to Jess O'Callaghan at the lunch break and said, can I tell you about my idea? I don't really want anyone else to hear about it. And I was all like secretive and I told her about it and she was very supportive. And that sort of made me go, oh, cool. When I first was thinking about it, I wasn't going to be so much the focus. Like I was, it's this personal story, but then it was going to be a lot about the research and other people's stories. But through chatting to friends, people were like, no, that's what makes it interesting. Make it about you. And I've been a journalist for years, but never made a story about myself. And it felt kind of weird and wrong. And I felt quite vulnerable doing that. I had this conversation with a friend and she was like, yeah, that people respect that vulnerability and that vulnerability is what draw people in. And so I just had to keep um, telling myself that it was good for the story. <laughs> and so I went and spoke to, there's a lot of research being done around the world in this. And, and basically they said, you're asking the same questions we're asking. And yes, there's a few answers, but in the end, I think nature's a bit too complicated for us to bottle up and, and single out. I think probably we are part of nature and we've sort of lost our connection with the natural world and I think the, the more you can reconnect with it. I guess that's kind of where the journey I'm on at the, at the moment is just noticing how it doesn't really matter how much time you spend or where you are, it's actually about the quality of that connection. So you can go for a bushwalk in the Royal National Park but you're on your phone, you're not really connecting. You can go and sit in the park and really like notice that tree and look at the insects and the birds and really just tune into it and be really present to it for five minutes and I think you'll probably do your brain just as much of a favour. That piece there was called Natural Connection, created by the All the Best editorial team for AudioCraft Podcast Festival earlier this year. You heard there from Sarah Alley describing how she used nature to help her recover from a traumatic brain injury. If you do want to hear more, Sarah created a podcast all about her experience. It's called Brain on Nature and season two is currently in the works. You can also check out All the Best wherever you get your podcast from. And if you'd like to be involved with All the Best, they are currently accepting spring pitches. You can head over to allthebestradio.com to find out more. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.